You're listening to Atlas of Chiropractic, the show where we uncover upper cervical chiropractic care for healthcare professionals, students, and potential patients. I'm Dr. John Stenberg, and with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder, we are your guides to a behind-the-scenes look at the science and practice of upper cervical chiropractic. Welcome back to the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. John Stenberg, with new friend, Dr. Bill Lorden. We just got the chance to connect at the ICA's uh, Council on Upper Cervical Care Forum a few weeks back in Dallas, and uh, Dr. Lorden, with a cohort of, of his peers, graduated the Diplomate program. So congrats on your accomplishment, and uh, was able to also present some interesting uh, tech and research. And uh, for those that haven't heard, we did an ICA upper cervical forum recap episode. Go back and check that out just to get an idea of some of the conversations that were going on. Uh, but I connected with Dr. Lorden and thought, you know, this this topic, you know, some of the tech we'll talk about warrants further discussion and is definitely of interest uh, to upper cervical docs. So I appreciate you being generous with your time, making time for us. And um, if you would, just give us a give us a little bit of background. Tell us how you got involved with chiropractic and upper cervical work, and we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So it's always fun to talk about what you love and especially with, with new people that you haven't discussed the things before. So, you know, just a quick background. I, uh, I, I went off to college uh, without the intention of majoring in uh, a, a lit major. That's what I became. And all of a sudden I graduated. I really didn't want to use the major. My grandfather came to town and he said to me, hey, I'm going to go see your cousin Joe and his wife, Carolyn. Do you want to go? Yeah, sure. So I went with him. And the next thing I knew, I was walking into Joe's office. You can probably see where this is going. Uh, Joe and Carolyn were chiropractors and they had met in chiropractic school. Uh, he laid he said, lay on the table. He checked me out, did a few things. I got off the table feeling fantastic and wondering what had just happened. Mm -hmm. Why did I feel so good? Joe, what was that? He said, oh, go, go back to the house. We'll be, you know, we'll be there in an hour or two and I'll tell you whatever. So that, that really was it. I think the moment I stood up off the table, but when they got back from work was really the moment I knew that I was heading off to school. Hmm. So I moved to Atlanta um, and under their advice, they said, Hey, while you're there, study this upper cervical stuff. It's really important. So, and at the time they were, they were uh, really interested in kale, although it wasn't their primary uh, method of practice. So I started with kale negative two quarter. Um, and by the time I got into the second quarter at life, I had done all of kale's modules and I was off on a mission trip to Moldova that was um, led at that time by uh, Dr. Kessinger and Dr. Dahlias. So that was my, you know, sort of interest or in, in, um, entrance point into it all. And I was just really intrigued by it. Um, you know, how, how could you just focus on one area, move one bone and affect so much? But, you know, it's a, it's a larger conversation. But inherently, I always went back to um, to the idea, well, you know, why did I like the idea of going to chiropractic school? And if you distill it down to its finer components, it was this. Conceptually, it was a, a minimally invasive highly effective way to help people. So I always kind of kept that in my, in my head and said, well, if I like the profession for that purpose, I should then pursue clinical means to the same ends. And what better to do that than upper cervical? 
And as we know, you know, there's a bunch of ways to practice upper cervical, even within the different camps that exist under our general tent, if you will. What an introduction. I know Dr. Kale, you know, what a Dr. Michael Kale, for those that aren't familiar, um, that guy was, you know, he was a disciple of Sherman, um, Lyle Sherman, uh, not the Sherman College, but the guy that the college is named after. And just a super dynamic, you know, Southern guy with all the uh, piss and vinegar that you could bottle and put into a chiropractor and just, yeah. you know, sit, you can go on YouTube and look up some of his lectures and uh, some of those things. And man, you know, they were at the time they were about it, you know, they were hardcore and they were really, um, I don't, it seems like that, that kind of, uh, what's the word, that intensity mm-hmm. of this is the way that you need to do things is kind no of no uh, doubt existed within that man's mind. No doubt. It's None. it's admirable, and it's mm-hmm. in it, and, and if you spend any time around upper cervical chiropractors, you'll meet ten people who say they adjusted kale on his deathbed, and it's like th- this thing that they all brag about. But sure. um, but all that to say, you're a brand new chiropractor. You know this stuff's all new to you, and that's that's the way that you got introduced. I think there's something to that, you know, because when folks emphasize with that level of intensity, the importance in the work and the commitment to doing it perfectly mm-hmm. and and then you know doing it at a large scale because i know those mission trips you know i've seen videos where they're just humming right they've got it's people doing scans part. calling out listings adjust yeah. adjust adjust i mean thousands and thousands of people on these trips would get checked and adjusted right so just an interesting way to get to get into it especially when you know i went to life as well and there was a lot of my classmates were second, third generation chiropractors, were Cairo kids growing up, were adjusted forever. And I was kind of like, yeah, it was like a clean slate. All this stuff was new to me. So uh, I think the uh, the paths that we find ourselves on are interesting, but they end up, you know, leading us in the direction we need to go. But I like the idea of a means to an end. You know, it's, it's true. We talk a lot about chiropractic philosophy and what chiropractic can and should do for patients when they're clear. And you know, I had the same thing. It's like, well, what's the, what's the most scientific and, and reproducible and appropriate and uh, patient centered way for them to experience that, you know, to make that philosophy real in the lives of people who are suffering. And it was the same kind of deal. I, I finally meandered my way into upper cervical. So mm-hmm. good deal. And I, I'm, I'm forever thankful for my, um, my time in the knee chest world in camp and my exposure to kale, but simultaneously, there was this little thing that sort of happened or didn't happen, which also affect my later years. Um, you know, as I progressed, I feel like every speaker should get up on stage and before they present say, okay, I'm just a real guy. I'm just a real woman. Um, if you're expecting perfection out of me, it does not exist. I am not that thing that you hold at the peak of the mountain. And that's what I thought I was and in, in, in some ways was, you know, getting with kale, that, that perfection, that, because I had no other idea of what upper cervical was. I thought this was everything. And then, you know, somewhere along the line, somebody said, Hey, BJ, um, you know, it was kind of said in a whisper, really, uh, you know, BJ did some side posture toggle adjusting. Whoa. And the person that said that in, in today's language literally got canceled, got run out of town, lost his friends, lost, you know, the ability to come back into the chess club. Hmm. So it was very intense, 
But there was a group of us that had, you know, kept reading green books past volume 18, which is a fabulous volume, right? But we read more and we kept asking more questions. Well, how come and what and what, you know, what really transpired? So at that point, thankfully, one of us had found um, a doctor by the name of Clarence Jensen who practiced out of California in the neighborhood of San, uh, San Francisco anyway. I can't remember exactly where. So he was a student at the time that BJ was there. He worked in the research clinic. I believe he worked in Clearview. I can't remember that detail. But anyway, you know, he, w- he was there. He was on the scene. And he had a group of maybe a dozen of us come out. And we, ha- we hung out at his practice. And he showed us the version of chiropractic that was being practiced at that time. So side posture toggle, the neuro um, calligraph, the neurotempometer, all of that. And interestingly enough, Dr. Jensen, I believe to this day, is the only chiropractor to have published um, any research on chiropractic and cancer. Hmm. So uh, Clarence Jensen was his name. His patient's name was Jerry Lee. I actually had the opportunity to meet Jerry. Uh, and, and obviously, Jerry was very, very passionate about chiropractic because it had saved his life. Now, how can we say that? I mean, it's really an audace, a big, big you know, thing to say, right? So he was um, he was an engineer with either uh, JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, or Morton Thiokol. I can't remember. And he was he was potting um, his cancer treatments and his chiropractic treatments on a graph with AFP, which is alpha fetoprotein, the marker for his cancer. Um, and he had come to the conclusion that Dr. Jensen had played at least equal, if not more of a role in his recovery. Hmm. Uh, Jensen retired, handed over his practice. Jerry became ill and then went and knocked on Clarence's door and said, Hey, Dr. Jensen, um, I'm ill. The other guy's not doing it the way you did it. I need you. So that got Clarence back in and it got us, you know, into his 10 by 10 office in his house. Uh, you know, learning from him. So that was like the the next step for me. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think there's so many, uh, you know, we we talk about these miracles and and anybody that's familiar with chiropractic history knows the the Grostick story, you know, same, same thing, you know, his, the, the family tree of orthogonal techniques that branches from Dr. Grostick, you know, without his experience with that same, you know, that same scenario, we might not be having the conversation. So it's, it's interesting how those, you know, those chiropractors of that generation um, were really, I want to say unapologetic about saying like, yeah, we can help you with that. You know, I think now we try to be pretty, we try to be mindful of the way that we communicate with expectations and, and outcomes we can expect. But I think in the back in the day, they were like, you know, we're here for, we're here for what they would call medical failures, right? We're here to help sick people get well. Yeah. And I don't care what you have and what's going on with you. We're going to try our best to get after it. And uh, that level of intensity, again, is is admirable. And I think, you know, it's kind of ebbs and flows through culture and time and as as people come into and out of the profession. But um, it was some interesting, interesting uh, foundational experiences. Yeah. You know, as a young doc and student, those are those are uncommon uh, encounters, you know, for chiropractic students. Right. So initially it was the conviction, the power, the dedication with Kale. And then, it, then it, and I love that because that's with me today. I've seen things happen, you know, clinically, if you will, or with patients that I've adjusted in, in, the, uh, in the Russian experience, the Moldova experience that I wouldn't have seen otherwise. 
uh, if you will, it's a bit of seeing the green book come alive. You're like, whoa, this, this stuff really happens and I'm seeing it real time right here. To be disenchanted a little bit because of his, you know, his, his, his conviction without some of the other information. So that leads me down the road of Jensen uh, into toggle side posture. And now I'm like, hey, the box is open, man. Let's keep, let's keep uh, rummaging through the box and see what's in here. Uh, next up was Blair, and uh, I got exposed to Blair through. Got, at this point, I had transferred up to Sherman because I wanted a greater, um, greater concentration and focus and ability to practice and understand the cervical. So they had, you know, they had Perry Rush on staff. They had Pat Cuda from the AO world on staff. Um, I was a student doctor or the student that was on the hiring committee. We brought in Tom Palucky out of the Blair world as well. So there was this really great upper cervical environment, uh, plus, you know, some other things which I think are, uh, you know, a little slower, a little more reserved full spine approaches. So here I get exposed to it through Ciro Astici, Roger Morrison, Perry Rush, um, and that was my Blair experience. And it was, at, you know, it was at this point where I felt like I was starting to know things. Uh, and they would put up these different analytic, um, you know, lines of mensuration, right? And I'd look at it and I'd shake my head. Yeah, I know that one. I know that one. I know that one. And then they talked about Blair and, you know, how he was finding asymmetries and malformations. And then they would put that up and put those lines of mensuration up and show you how it could alter them. And I'm like, oh, it just, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was a beautiful letdown because it had, it had in, in some ways, tarnished the things I had known before, but it really didn't, you know, ultimately tarnish them. It, it just, it just puts them through a new lens, which I wasn't able to appreciate for, for many years after that. I, I got to the point where I'm like, well, rotation doesn't exist. It can't because the condyles and the convergence. And the next thing I know, um, I get into private practice. I'm practicing an upper cervical light version, very, very light. Um, through circumstance and a few other things that had been occurring in my, in my personal life. So I entered into practice, um, maybe 10 years goes by and I said, you know what? I've seen this stuff happen. I'm either getting out or I'm getting all the way in. Hmm. The only thing I haven't explored at this point is the orthogonal world. So it happened to be the orthospinology was having modules a few miles down the road from where my father lived and my grandmother lived. So I signed up, I went, I visited my family, um, and I got exposed to orthogonal. And now they're showing me a rotated atlas that post unrotates. Oh. <laughs> right back oh. where you started. I'll right screw back. it up again. <laughs> right. Um, but you know, again, I, I liked... I, like we, you talked a little bit about how Grostick had gone to school, right? And some of the things he had brought to the table was not only the qualification, but the quantification of the misalignment. So here it was, I was getting to see that and experience it. I'm like, well, that's really, that's really cool. Um, and I just, I just kept going down further and further uh, that trail. And that's what I ended up converting the office to eventually. And I, I do do a little bit of other um, upper cervical approaches in here, but well, Ultimately, um, orthospinology became the main clinical focus uh, out, of that, out of that long, long, winding, uh, deep rabbit hole that I entered into. Yeah, it, the technique part of 
the practice is interesting in upper cervical. I, I don't know what it's like in full spine technique camps, you know, the Gonsteads, the Thompsons, the whatever else is. But there's a, for, for a lot of upper cervical chiropractors, there's a, uh, let's say, sense of identity and belonging and community with their technique organizations or, or you know, uh, communities. And so sometimes it's it's easy to get siloed, you know, and to get mm -hmm. stuck in, and I hate to use the word stuck, but to kind of be relegated to our assumptions and our understandings and our, you know, outcomes and, and, and just kind of really hyper-focus in that area. And, and sometimes what ends up happening is you diminish the others to build yours up and you don't have to, you know, I, I've always thought of a subluxation in a patient is not technique dependent. You know, we're all going to characterize it differently through our technique lens, to use your word. And there may be certain techniques that, you know, lend themselves to be more efficacious with certain types of patients, which sure. I think is really interesting. So and it's, I think, it's the kind oh, of, sorry, go ahead. That's the kind of thing that I think, you know, for a lot of us draws us like that conviction, like you said, draws us to a technique or a system because it's compelling, you know, but then in time, you know, you start to kind of look over the, over the border a little bit and go, what are those people talking about? You know, I'm, I'm not so threatened by another point of view anymore, you know, and I'm interested and I'm curious about what someone else might have to offer. Right. And a lot of that, you know, comes, comes through time and experience with patients when you do everything quote right. And you still have folks that, you know, don't get the result that you anticipate. That's how these guys like Dr. Blair start tinkering, right? And start messing around with what they've learned and how can we make it that much better? Mm hmm yeah, you, you, I mean, you'd mentioned that, like getting in your silo. I think that same concept occurs within social movements, within religious camps. It's everywhere, and you know, although it's probably good for some and good for a lot, I think it's also a very limiting sometimes. It doesn't mean you need to leave your silo, but look outside of it. See, see what the other perspectives are. Um, you know, maybe there's something you can bring into your silo and say, hey. You know, most of the time I'm okay, but once in a while I might need to do a little bit of this or a little bit of that or look at it from a different perspective. And you talked yeah. about doing things right. Um, I'll admit it. Sometimes there have been th times I've done things wrong. It worked out right for the patient, but I look at it and I'm like, that was 100% the wrong uh, rotation. Maybe I, I had the x-ray flipped or something. And, you know, it's big confession time, right? But, uh, you know, that, that did happen, especially early on before I had um, re levels of redundancy within my analytics. So now I have that and that doesn't happen. But I've talked to other, you know, other people in practice and they're like, oh man, I adjusted a right from the left or I adjusted anterior from posterior. So you look at that and you're like, well, how did that happen? How did it still come out where my, my clinical um, assessment cleared, symptoms cleared? I did it wrong. Or not necessarily according to the package. So yeah, we've we've got to always keep an open mind to what we're doing, how it works, the mechanisms, all of that sort of thing. And then back to the the philosophical basis, you know, there's these external invasive forces, you know, that can create constructive survival value. And an, a chiropractic adjustment is an external invasive force, you know, and the intention is to create constructive survival value. But I think it does kind of um, 
put the chiropractor back in his place and go, you know, it's not all about me moving this bone, you know, and, and creating a change structurally, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes the neurological impact, even when the structural, uh, you know, part of it might not have been handled properly, you know, creates positive outcome and you go with it, you know, and, and you obviously don't make that mistake again. You work hard to create those levels of redundancy, but it does kind of take some of the emphasis off of us and put it back into the, uh, you know, intelligence in, within the patient that heals the body. And it's a gut check kind of a thing. But speaking of tech, I mean, there's so much interesting equipment and technology. It's like every time you turn around, there's something new that's being flashed in front of, you know, chiropractors as, you know, the next the next big thing. At this forum a couple of weeks back, you got to share with us some information about pupillometry hmm. and some interesting findings that you've you know been able to measure in your practice. And we talked about the mechanisms related to um, the physiology with that. I'm curious how you, let's first explain what pupillometry is and maybe how you got introduced to that technology. And then uh, for those that weren't able to attend and see those findings, I'd love for you to explain, you know, what you found. Sure. And if you don't mind, John, I'll, I'll flip it and I'll talk first about the observation and the thought. Great. Um, so, you know, I'm continuing to climb the mountain. I want to know more. I enter into the diplomate program in, uh, I think it was April of 19. So the upper cervical diplomate program. And I, I become interested in the idea of intracranial pressure. And now you, you get exposed to some of those concepts early on. Um, and really the diplomate program is a wonderful fire hose that you get the opportunity to drink from but it's a distilled fire hose. It's like they're distilling down all of this different material in these different areas and giving it to you in just massive volumes. So, you know, I get exposed to some of these ideas and I start to think about my patients and some of the cases I had and have. And then I get, so I get exposed to Kessinger, Dr. Dr. Robert Kessinger. And, you know, he's expanding on our exams, our neuro exams, and and what they could mean, and maybe you know, why they're clinically relevant. So he had us looking in people's mouths, things I didn't hadn't thought of really uh, since I was a student. At that point, I was one of those students who was like, "Why do I need to know this? I, I'm never going to be looking in people's mouths." Ha ha! Here we are again, right? <laughs> Revisiting things I, I had abandoned. Um, so. I had a patient who had post-concussion syndrome, two well-documented cases. Um, she had CTE, uh, cerebellar tonsillar ectopia. I think three millimeters, if I'm not mistaken, was the measurement. So below what people like to see by any scale. There's various scales for sure. Um, but when she entered, she had a lot of glossal scalloping. And her mm. tongue looked, uh, I don't know if you'd use the term glossal meglia, but it was enlarged. It looked big. So I adjust her once, twice over a three-month period. Her symptoms resolve. Her headaches hurt. The pressure that she talked about resolved. Brain fog was leaving. Um, and I forget the other symptoms she had. And I looked in her mouth again, and the glossal scalloping was gone. What the heck? And her tongue was, uh, I don't know the, the language we'd use here, but it, was, it looked normal, right? It, it wasn't as swollen. So by this point, I 
was getting exposed to Chapman, uh, Dr. Chris Chapman out of Utah, and some of his concepts of, of what occurs and how other systems interrelate to the upper cervical spine. And come to find out the tongue and the mouth and the teeth also have a huge concentration of proprioceptive nerve endings. They feed into the mesencephalic nucleus and a few other nuclei in the brain, which are really integral. So conceptually, I thought to myself at, at this moment, maybe she, she was jamming her tongue against her teeth for two, for two reasons, perhaps. One, for um, supplemental you know, input into the central axis, right? So maybe that's because the, you know, we knew she had an upper cervical subluxation, was not doing well, and now we corrected it, and her tongue is no longer getting those markings on it. So, and then the other thing which I then began to investigate was maybe she had an elevated intracranial pressure that wasn't sufficient enough to make her, you know, hospital case or even be, um, you know, acknowledged as such. So that led me to a paper that uh, Khan and others had written in 19, or 2017 or 18. And thankfully, they did the lifting that I was looking for. So they had examined 190 different papers that looked at uh, the measuring of intracranial pressure in a non-invasive way. Hmm. Because the invasive way to do it is to essentially you know, put a hole in somebody's head and then either stick a, a transducer into the ventricles or into the subdural spaces or whatever. But you, you, you've got to get something in there that's going to measure the, the pressure and get it out to an external monitoring device. Now, from a, a non-neuro ICU, non-post-neurosurgical scenario, um, that's not going to happen, right? That's just not going to happen. So these folks, they had, they had done a, um, a review of all the published uh, publications that occurred regarding non-surgical, non-invasive uh, ICP or intracranial pressure monitoring. And two things rose to the top. One was ONSD or optic nerve sheath diameter. So they would take uh, you know, transducer jelly and stick um, ultrasound on the eye. And because of the, the ability of ultrasound, they could look inside a bit and they could see was the optic nerve sheath enlarged or not. Now, why you know why why does that work or how does that work? So the the answer essentially is this: you know, our brain is mostly a fixed cavity. You can look into something called the Monroe Kelly doctrine if you want to know more about that. But anyway, it's, it's this fixed cavity, and certain things compress and certain things don't. And as more stuff enters the brain, whether it be CSF or blood or you know an op a foreign object even that's going to elevate the intracranial pressure. Something gets pushed out. So because the, you know, the, essentially the dural tissues are contiguous with, with the inside and all of the exit points, the fluid is getting pushed down the sheath and it's enlarging the optic nerve sheath. So that one's interesting, right? Uh, and then the next one that they came up with was pupillometry. And when you look at the, uh, the way that that's done, in essence, it's a very fancy infrared camera that, you know, you, you put over the eye, it shines a light in there, and then it observes the, um, the reactions for, for three seconds, takes 90 pictures. And then, so that, that's one brand. There's, there's a few different brands out there, but the one that I gravitated to, uh, Neuroptics, that's the way they go about it. And what they'll look at is they'll see, you know, what happens. There's, you can measure other things as well, but you can look at the latency, latency period. You can look at the amplitude. You can look at the direct, you can look at all of this stuff. 
And what they've come up with is um, their own measurement. They call it an NPI, a neuropupillary index. And thankfully, uh, they've done enough research on it now where they know if you are here, you're okay. If you're below there, you're not. And everything else is considered to be variations of okay. So, um, you know, I, I didn't want to stick jelly on somebody's eye or a transducer. Plus, I'm not trained in the interpretation of that. Right. right. But if you look back at our schooling, you know, they would, we'd all take the pen light and you'd shine it in somebody's eye and then you'd look. Mm-hmm. And now this is back to sort of a Grostic thing, quant- qualification versus quantification. So yeah. if you're looking at the eye and I'm looking at the eye, the classic language was brisk, normal, sluggish, or absent, I believe was the fourth. Well, who's calling what each of those levels? I don't know. And so there was a, there's another paper out there that said that like the variance in training is, um, is over 60% with all people. Forget hmm. about even talking about experience, but training, knowledge, application, standardization of the pen light, the number of lumens coming out of it, all of that has huge variance in it. So the nice thing about uh, you know doing an NPI is it's standardized. I don't need to guess, assume, or think that I saw something. It tells me it's a number. It's an objective number. We are now looking at quantifying that thing that we looked at before and said, I think it's sluggish or I think it's okay. So, um, you know, that, that was sort of the road that, that I went down. And then just, just recently, I, I just started reading a paper by Kim um, and obviously had other others on that paper, but talking about the, the use of neuropupillary indexes um, or pupillometry in particular in neuro ICUs. And there's this huge correlation and it's used bedside in neuro ICUs, post-surgical trauma, et cetera, and other pathologies. But they're using it because they know that it correlates to a higher ICP intracranial pressure or a decreasing one. So that the value that you, you look at does not give you the pressure in the brain, but we know that if you've eclipsed a certain level, the ICP is too high. But then we also know if you're doing a clinical intervention, whatever that might be, in our case, we know what that might be. Um, we know that if that if the NPI number is improving, that the ICP is dropping towards normal. Fascinating stuff. And I think, you know, when, when I first heard people talking about when I read Flanagan's paper in school on craniospinal hydrodynamics, mm-hmm. it was like, wow, I, you know, what, how did I not think about cerebrospinal fluid, you know, as, as it relates to the spine and misalignment. So that was interesting. But then, you know, I always had this thing in the back of my head. It's like, I'd like to talk to people about that, but I can't in good conscience say that I improved the circulation of cerebrospinal fluid if I can't measure it. Right. You know, we can, we can make the assumption based on you know, symptomatology and clinical presentation, but being able to actually have some objective way to quantify, you know, quantify that with a known physiological mechanism was really interesting. So when you start talking about the, you know, the MPI scores and the pupillometry, I was like, okay, now we're, we're getting somewhere with this because as far as clinical application, you know, we're not all Dr. Rosa with an upright MRI around the Mm -hmm. corner, you know, where we can go in there and take these, these, uh, spinal fluid exam studies and, and, 
maybe that's not necessary with with a lot of our patients. Right. And but he, for he a, was part of my thought process as well, now that you bring it up, because we've seen you know the pre and post changes and volume and flow dynamics and all of that. So all of that was in there as part of my you know, discovery process. Yeah, yeah. And and to make it more, you know, to make it more applicable to more upper cervical chiropractors, you know, we need other tools besides, you know, these high, uh, high barrier to entry imaging studies, you know, for, for us to be able to say on a, on a larger scale, there's ways that we can monitor and, and track this over time and, and collect the same data, you know, and, right. and make comparisons for outcomes. So really exciting stuff. And, and for folks that want to know more about that NPI score, look at those ranges, the NeuroOptics uh, website has, you know, the brochures and the information and, and can, you can see what the uh, equipment looks like, you know, how the procedures are done. So go check, check that out. I'll put a link in the uh, description here so you could follow that uh, right away. But you also had an interesting way of how you acquired the equipment. So explain how it came to be that, you know, from this idea to actually being able to measure it, you know, table side, how that came about. Um, you know, so then I started looking and said, all right, who, who has anything to offer out there? Is there anything available? Um, and I, I've spent a lot of time kind of being quiet in my office, accumulating knowledge and accumulate, accumulating experience. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I've gotten to the point where it's like, okay, it's time to start taking that and reaching out and doing things with it. So I called them. And uh, we started talking and I explained my thought process similar to what I just told you. And the guy that I was talking to said, that's really interesting. I've never heard anything like that. He said, there are no chiropractors out there using our technology. He said, it exists in neuro ICUs, hospitals, so hospitals. Um, and there's some folks in the eye world, ophthalmologist, optometrist that, that are using it, but that's it. So um, we hung, he said, you know, we've got various models of it. And um, he sort of, uh, let me get back to you. I'm going to look and see what, what we might have and what we might be able to do. And that's, that's how it, it took off. Um, you know, so the, the, the cost is a bit prohibitive, I would say, for most clinics, especially for something that's really at this point in early stages of trial. But uh, now that I've done the diplomate, program and pass the exam. I'm a little bit more free to gather data and do some, um, some you know, more formalized research on it. But one of the things I, I mentioned in, in Dallas is the bulk of the time I am moving the needle in the right direction with the ICP numbers or with the um, NPI numbers, excuse me. So one of the questions I also need to answer, uh, and maybe it's out there because there's a lot that, that well, it's out there is a, so in essence, we want the NPI number to be a three or more. Is a 3.1 just as good as a five? Now that's the yeah. scale. Five yeah. is the top or 4.9 is the top. And a, and a so technically a 2.9 is no good. But is really a three just as good as a four nine? Now inherently, um, you know, me the person here is saying, no way, it can't be. It just can't be. Now, me, the doctor, I can't go ahead and, and say those things, but, uh, you know, because we need research, we, we need data, we need information in order to make those claims. Like you're saying, the things we would like to say. 
But, you know, one of the things I'm comfortable saying is, yeah, we're moving you further away from from that bad zone. We don't want you yeah. in this zone and we're moving you further away from it. So it, I'm comfortable saying that, but, you know, is it truly better? Well, yeah, it's with with any clinical outcome, it's like how much of a short leg is relevant for the person? How yeah. much atlas rotation on an x-ray is it, you know, are, are we acceptable, is acceptable and, and you know, not clinically impacting their neurophysiology. So much more work to be done on that. And and I wanted to just introduce the concept, not so that folks feel like they have to rush out and start measuring NPIs, but to bring up a couple, a couple thoughts, you know, number one is look outside of the box, you know, to consider how we may, uh, integrate other ideas and, and perspectives into, mm-hmm. into our, you know, our view of how effective chiropractic is and, and think about some of these neurophysiological mechanisms. The other part of it is have the boldness to make the call, right? It's like, I think a lot of times, you know, we feel like, well, as chiropractors, we're less than in healthcare and we can't take the, you know, take the initiative to reach out and to explain this mechanism and to tell other professionals what we're thinking about and, and to, you know, be curious and, and, you know, make that step in the direction of, you know, a, a new, uh, a new field of endeavor, a new frontier of science. It's, it's chiropractors are outside the box thinkers. I think that's one of the things that makes us really integral in the healthcare space. So we deal with people all the time where we're uncovering things that have been overlooked, you know, and mm-hmm. not for a lack of compassion or, you know, for a lack of, uh, care on the part of other providers, but they just don't have that information. So I would encourage folks to, you know, follow, follow your, uh, your curiosity and try stuff out. It doesn't mean it's going to be a home run every time, but man, if you sit back and go, wouldn't it be cool if a chiropractor checked that out? Yeah, yeah, it would. And you might be the one to do it. And so have the, uh, you know, have the audacity, I guess, sometimes and be mindful and, ble- and, and obviously like your training as a diplomat prepared you to have that conversation thoughtfully. And I think there's definitely a, a tactful way to go about that. But, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your example with that. And I, I hope that other folks will take, you know, take that and run with it too. Yeah. So and I think we're, we're in a very exciting time. Um, generally I've thought that as we've gone, but I mean, nowadays with the ability to share information, to look easily uh, across all of the silos, uh, without having to join them. So you can go on PubMed and you can look up. Mm-hmm. Not everything, obviously, but there's so much on there. Um, I'm working on another couple of things, which are just like totally other, you know, fireside chat, other time things, but uh, you, you can just get down these wonderfully deep and beautiful rabbit holes and looking at information like, wow, other people are looking at this. They're looking at it from a different angle. Now we're not going to approach it the same, but you know, I would urge anybody to be willing to, you know, lose sight of the, of what they're doing for just a moment, like venture out, see if there's another shore out there and what's on it. And then just remember your way back, right? Go, go investigate. If there's things that you are interested in clinically, ask the question. And and, and in part, you know, we talked a little bit about this um, in Dallas and you, I think you talked about it in your recap. There's all these different uh, metrics that are out there now, right? We've got, um, like the NPI and the US Westry, we can we can tie what we're doing oftentimes to established gold standards. 
Right. So if, if you're doing something in your office or you have the thought that, hey, this thing might be happening, investigate. Ask the question, is there a gold standard for measuring this thing? Is there a way to assess for this pre and post? Because the answers might be out there. And I think if we're if we then do what you know our clinical procedures and we tie it to those things and we see those things improving, we're now dealing with the same currency that everybody else is dealing with. We got to the table differently and we're but we're just we're dealing with it and they can understand it. How did you move that NPI like that? That's really cool. How did you get that oswestry to improve? That's really cool. How did you improve blood pressure? I mean, God, we know that's been done. So, yeah. And I was just going to bring that example. I think a lot of the, a lot of the uh, instances we're we're very proud of as upper cervical chiropractors involve that exact you know exact sentiment is. Dr. Harshfield and Dr. Rosa, you know, Dr. Dick Holtz mm-hmm. and his colleagues, and they worked on that blood pressure study. It's like, it's, it's, we, we like to brag and talk about these, you know, these uh, interactions that, you know, produce interesting new thoughts and observations. And the more people that, you know, I think feel equipped and confident to, to have those interactions and to do it thoughtfully and to bridge those gaps, it's, it's, it's moves things in a, in a new direction. Let's not say the right direction, but in a different direction. And rather than compare, I think it is important to, and in and, and time, hopefully we do compare clinical outcomes across techniques, you know, let's also, you know, like you said, evaluate for some of the other, you know, so the other tools and perspectives beyond the chiropractic borders, because there's, there are other folks that are interested in this physiology, mm-hmm. right. And they're finding ways to, uh, you know, to do the heavy lifting, to use your word, because it's going to be a hard task for a chiropractor to come up with this technology and to, you know, cause we're clinical. We're, we're clinical researchers, right? We're caring for people first and foremost. Mm-hmm. We're not tinkering in a lab, you know, with an NIH grant, but there are folks doing that. And if we can, you know, borrow from uh, what they're observing and experiencing, I think it's, you know, if we can make those connections, it's really powerful. Absolutely. So what other things are you, uh, are you really excited about these days in, in terms of, you know, the practice of upper cervical? Oh, you know, really the, the, I think the council and the diplomate program, which is part of the council really, um, that's just really exciting because I, I feel like we're all now at least in the same canoe. We've got paddles that are going in the right direction. There's a lot of effort being put in by a lot of people. Um, and when you, when you get the opportunity and you look at all of that, you say, wow, we're, we're really doing a bunch of good work on a bunch of fronts. Um, you know, the diplomate program, a formalized way to um, get specialty knowledge and specialty training, right? That's not procedure specific. Although you need to be certified in some, a procedure or more, it's not procedure specific. It is, hey man, this is what's happening here. This is what our specialty does. And then whether you use the Jones procedure or the Smith procedure is irrelevant to us, but you need that knowledge, you need that training. So that's exciting. Um, and then, you know, things like the different outreach programs and the different, um, all the different committees for education and, and political relations. Um, those are really interesting. The diplomate masterminds and the outreach that we're doing uh, on those. When you're, you know, back to that silo thing, when you're in your silo and you're looking at people in other silos, sometimes you, you can be a little suspicious if they're trying to, you know, throw a monkey wrench into yours or take over your silo or, you know, what have you. But one of the, one of the beautiful parts of the diplomate is you really let go of a lot of that 
and you, you start looking for understanding and you start realizing that asking the question isn't your downfall, isn't your ignorance. It's your quest for knowledge. And, and, and unless you're asking questions, you're not going to expand. You're not going to take things in new directions. You're not, you're not going to take us any further than we were when D.D. Palmer first adjusted Harvey Millard. But because other people along the way asked questions and did more, you and I sit in this beautiful spot that we're at presently. Um, so, you know, that's yeah. all just tremendously exciting. It is. And, and a couple episodes back, I talked to Dr. Chris Leninger, and he he brought this example that a patient mentioned one time, the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit and wisdom is knowing it doesn't belong in a fruit salad. <laughs> and it's like, get the knowledge, you know, understand those nuances. And then with time and experience comes the wisdom to understand how and when to apply that knowledge, you know, and what its limitations might be. And uh, it's, I guess, like the levels of, you know, personal development and even the levels of, you know, how cultures and societies develop. It's, it's all part of it. But um, what, so what's practically changed? This is something I always like to ask diplomates once they've gone through this process is what's different about your practice now than when you, you know, embarked on that journey in 2019? <laughs> a lot, I would say. Uh, and it's hard, it, it's hard because it doesn't happen as a light switch. Right? Yeah. It happens like a dimmer. And, and certainly there's certain points where that dimmer switch kind of uh, gets brighter more rapidly, but you're in this, it, it, you're in this process, you're in this procedure and you're gaining knowledge so, you know, gradually my understanding, my integration of the knowledge happened. Um, gradually, I started to expand my exams and look at more things. Um, you know, and, and even with, um, you know, back to the pupillometry stuff. So when you start studying that, you, you realize that changes in, 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 in pupillometry can be one of two different ways, right? It's either pressure or pathway. So if somebody bangs their head, they're either going to have developed a situation where the pressure can increase or the pathways get disrupted. And you can look at, you know, the nucleus of Edinger, Westfall, the olivary nucleus, all these other nuclei, um, the sympathetic versus the parasympathetics and their interventions into our innervation, interventions, or innervation, can't say the word, uh, their role. There we go. I can say that easily um, into the eye. So you, you start looking at all these things and you think about it and you're like, wow, we're, we're into new territory, new understanding. Um, and let's integrate that into the, into the, the stuff that we're doing in the office. Um, it's the, uh, my, it's the results that have been right in front of you the whole time. You know, if you had known what to look for, you know? Yeah. A lot of it has been, has been there. Um, and, and so like I was just saying with the pressure and the pathway, so maybe you are a very, very strict upper cervical office and you're literally just adjusting C1 and just is not in a diminutive in any way that in that sentence. Mm -hmm. But you now you start to under, understand when you're looking at pupillometry, pathways and pressure, two ways to change it or have it changed. And both can be happening simultaneously. So if I'm adjusting and not doing other things in my office, maybe there's a neurodiplomate nearby and you call them up and say, hey, I noticed this. I know that some of the, the pathways involved is your specialty. Would you mind taking a look and seeing if you can do th things to supplement the care that we're doing in our office? So it's just, a, you know, it's also, it, it broadens your ability to look at something and say, hey, 
patient might do much better. And, and at that point, patient's happy. I'm happy. Uh, everybody's happy. We, we've moved the needle in the right direction. So it's given that ability um, to recognize. And the pupillometry is just one thing because we've been talking about that. But that exists with other things as well, right? It's not yeah. confined to one thing. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think with uh, that collaborative care model, I do believe that you get what you're prepared for, you know, and there are a lot of folks that are, are suffering with these challenges that are, that are needing people to be prepared to handle them. Right. And, and it's kind of like that law of supply and demand. It's like, as you create, you know, the ability and the, the, the capacity for, for caring for these folks at a different level, all of a sudden it's going to open doors of opportunity for folks who are suffering to get the help that they need, you know, through, a conduit, you know, if you want to think of yourself that way as a chiropractor, that is going to be able to handle certain things for them very thoughtfully and very, you know, um, meaningfully, but then also facilitate and coordinate, you know, that additional care that might be required. I think that's a huge value that folks get when they see an upper cervical doctor. And it's, it's just the way that we think and study this stuff. Even if you're not involved with the diplomate, a lot of people are, are looking at neurophysiology and research, and they're just curious, right? We want to know the things that are related and, and that opens doors of opportunity for, for sick and suffering yeah. people to get the help they need. So, and, and the midbrain is kind of like the overlooked, you know, the overlooked, you know, uh, part of the, uh, we, we love to talk about the medulla and all those cranial nerves in the medulla, but there's a lot of business in the brain, the midbrain that's really, really relevant, you know, to, uh, to the mechanisms we're talking about. Yeah. So excellent. Then, you know, the other thing, John, is like, all of it has brought a lot more certainty to what it is I'm doing, how I'm going mm. about it, uh, and what I believe is achievable. But simultaneously, it brings up all these other questions. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's great. It's, it's, it's simultaneously, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm 50 right now. I hope to God I have another 100 years because the number of things that are now that I'm cooking that are in the frying pans of life for me. It's just yeah. a bunch and the, the, it gets cooler every, every year I'm in practice. It's just gotten better and, and more, um, more inspiring. And I'm, I'm, I'm forever just marveled at, at what happens. Hair raises on my arm every, almost every day, right? Like that's cool. That's really yeah. cool. Well, I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to share where you're at right now. I know for, for, I was talking with another chiropractor about this the other day, you know, interviewing docs that are, you know, on in their years and maybe toward the tail end of their career career and working to extract that wisdom from them, you know, in, the, in a sense of urgency about having conversations with those folks at the, you know, sort of in the twilight of their careers. I, I, I think of what I'm doing now as the flip of that. It's like, it would have been great to talk to them on the come up, right. In their contemporary days, you know, it's, it's one thing to get it toward the end. It's another thing to leave the paper trail along the way. So I, I view a lot of this work that we do with the podcast is, you know, having the conversations now so that in 30 years, you know, when, when this has continued to develop 50 years, 75 years, people can go back and hear for themselves. What were the conversations at the time? You know, what was going on and right. the, the pathway to what we have now, you know, what, what were the stepping stones, you know, to get from there to here? Uh, and I'm sure if we, you and I were to talk again in the future, there will be a different, you know, different flavor to the conversation and maybe some yeah. of what you learned 
you know, will build up what we're talking about now. Maybe some of it will be different. Uh, and so I always appreciate when folks are, are willing to go on record with, you know, sharing their their heart and their experience and, you know, the stage of development that they're in, because it creates that, um, you know, creates that timestamp, you know, of, of, you know, thoughts and ideas and, uh, you know, developments. Because so much of, you know, when I've talked to older chiropractors, it's, there's a lot of he said, she said, and I'm sure that was, you know, in the kale camp. And, and you see that even now, it's like, no, he said and did it this way. Well, I heard that he said and did it that way. And it's like, I don't, I'm not interested in that. I want to know, sure. you know, I just want you to be able to speak for yourself and share it on the record so that uh, folks can go back and hear from the man himself. Yeah. So good deal. Well, I appreciate again, the generosity of your time and for, for the work you do uh, for and behind the scenes in, in the upper cervical profession. Um, you know, a lot of it is a labor of love. You know, I, I, I know, you know, leaving that forum, I was thinking on the, on the flight back about a couple of takeaways. And one was a sense of urgency about with what we're already doing, dialing it in, you know, and, and doing the things that we already know to a higher level of, of proficiency mm-hmm. and precision. And then the other part of it was what a labor of love, you know, that this is, there's nobody's getting paid for this. You know, nobody's getting any, it's, it's yeah. practicing chiropractors who are going above and beyond right. volunteering their time, talent, and treasure, you know, to continue uh, to build this thing up. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's inspiring really is. So I appreciate all of you guys that, uh, you know, endeavor to complete the DCCJP that do research on the side that bring those information, that information and idea to the table, uh, that contribute on committees, you know, that volunteer extra time, you know, and aside from your family and your practice. John, if I may, part of one of the things we did prior to the conference starting was at a strategic planning meeting. Mm. And, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about how I was excited about the merely the the council right and the the diplomate program so one of the things we discussed is we're really although we're pretty far down the road right from 1895 to here we're really i think in our formalization and our structure in the earlier years sure we are in the position now where our our council board members are in the thick of it we're all you know, we're in our offices, we're, we're in all of that. And if you look at many different other organizations, their boards are more often than not a lot of retired folk that are yeah. out of the active engagement of that profession. So, you know, I think, you know, you, you were saying a little bit earlier about, um, you know, getting on and retiring and that sort of thing. I don't think we should ever retire. I don't think anybody should retire. And I, yeah, I can see the, the arrows and the rocks coming at the moment, <clears throat> but we're a really weird species in that regard. You'll never find a deer talking to another deer saying, Hey, Bob, what's going on? Oh, I'm heading <laughs> to Florida next week. I'm going to lay on the beach for the rest of my life. Fish swimming through the ocean. None of them are ever going to retire. They're going to keep doing fish thing. So they're going to keep doing deer things. I think in some level we need to stay involved if you love it, right? If you don't, then mosey on and find another pasture. But if you really love it, I think you need to find a way to keep doing chiropractic things. Now, whether that be boards as you get older or more teaching as you get older, but we need something for every stage and phase, both for the profession and I think and the individual. You look at people that have retired, oftentimes their health goes south quickly or they pass away quickly. Stay active, stay in it. Um, and then I love you, it. You also get the ability to share at that point. Yeah. Yeah, we're we're all at different stages of our life cycle, you know, as upper cervical chiropractors, and 
it, you, we all have mentors, we mentor others, and uh, it, it tends to go in cycles that way. So yeah, it's exciting to think about being engaged on every level of that, you know, and, and to have something to offer and to gain, you know, and to contribute at every level of that too. So um, it, it, you're right. Interesting species as people, a very interesting species as chiropractors, and then as upper cervical chiropractors, we have so much more in common than not, that it just makes sense, in my opinion, for us to stay close, you know, and to stay in touch. So Awesome. Well, again, I appreciate your time. Uh, any last words of encouragement, advice, or thoughts you'd like to leave with the listeners as we wind down? I think we said it all. I mean, there's there's always more, but uh, keep at it. Keep keep your mind open. Right. Keep asking questions. With new knowledge comes new ideas. Go get some new knowledge and see where it takes you. Uh, maybe it doesn't take you anywhere. Maybe it just confirms what you knew before, and that's great too. Um, and you know, as was said a bunch of times in Dallas. Help out, stick your oar in the water, row us in the right direction. Um, and sometimes that's the literal effort and time. Sometimes that's your money. Sometimes that's another thing that we might not even thought of. You know, we all have different ways that we can help, but but certainly that many hands make light work and we'd love to have more hands involved in all aspects. Hey, we just wanted to say thank you listening to atlas of chiropractic we really hope you enjoyed this episode go ahead and subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know about new episodes leave a rating and review to let others know how you really feel about the conversations we're having and last thing check the show notes for relevant links contact info and resources that we mentioned during this episode 